Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical, using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Joining me today as my co-briefer is the wonderful Matt Adams. We're also joined by our uh, cultural experts from around the, uh, the country and perhaps the globe, uh, Hannah Jerome and Catherine Lynn. And today uh, we have uh, a, a, a very special uh, member uh, of our panel, Jing Gao. She is the founder of Fly by Jing. She is someone who has uh, come in and out of Sparks and Honey uh, a couple times in the past, uh, let's say, five years. We're thrilled to have her on to talk about her experience and uh, her knowledge in, uh, in the food space. So Jing, uh, welcome virtually to our, our new studio. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, love having you on. And today we're going to be talking about America's changing palate. This country, and indeed the whole world, is getting a little more heterogeneous, uh, which is changing not only who we are and making us think differently about identity, but most important, in my, in my view, and tastiest manifestation of identity, which is food. You are, you know, you are what you eat. Uh, and so we are thrilled to dive into that connection. This is actually um, part of a continuing series of work that we've done for some clients uh, in this space who want to understand, you know, as we become more diverse as people's palates open up, what do they need to do? And so we're going to look at the ways in which this intersection of changing demographics and changing food culture are coming uh, together, and I'm really thrilled to have this conversation. So our big question for the day is, how are America's changing cultural demographics shifting how we think about food innovation, marketing, and access? And let's be clear, this is not just something for Americans, our European friends, our Australian friends watching today, our Brazilian friends. Uh, There's lots for everyone to chew on as this world gets a little bit flatter. Now, we'll start here with our, uh, our Zeitgeist map. As you know, we start every um, uh, briefing about this. We built a really, we, Matt, built a very big and beautiful Boolean looking at uh, this intersection of a million different food terms and then a whole bunch of ones focused on identity. And our system pulled in a lot of signals and, and also put out a map that I think is pretty interesting in that it has, it has a big diversity of, of trends. These aren't necessarily the ones that we'd expect to see when we look just purely at food. There are some definitely some food-related ones here. I will be clear about that. Mm-hmm. Provenance, maximalism, these are elements of culture we often associate with the food world. But I'm also interested in ones like your nostalgia, unperfect. There's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt, what's maybe another element of culture or two here that you think are important as we go into this conversation about that intersection of uh, culinary delights mm-hmm. and, uh, and and demographic change. Yeah, uh, two EOCs uh, stand out to me when it comes to the tensions of the progress that we're, you know, of the changing demographics of America. So camera culture and unperfect. And camera culture a lot because we see so much recipes and food commentary mm-hmm. from social media websites. But on top of that, unperfect because there's so much tension between cultural appropriation and also people who are actually posting on these social media sites and their own connection with their heritage and how that shows up in their food as well. Amazing. So, yeah, yeah, I think, look, I think that those tensions are, are you know, our work is often founded in, in tensions, um, but I think that's really important. And mm. um, I think I think our goal is to make these our positive tensions today. Yeah. Um, also, so just want to say really quickly for you watching live at home, um, we're more than happy to take questions and comments. This is a juicy topic. Please feel free to read them out. We have moderators like live here. We'd be happy to answer them. And even if you have some questions for our 
friend Jing. And uh, Jing, um, I, I got to call out some exciting stuff uh, you're, you're doing here. Um, sounds like a lot of people are going to get even more access to your products uh, thanks to a new partnership you have with Shake Shack in the UK. Hype Beast in this article reported on your activation here, which is being led by, quote, a chili crisp chicken, a crispy chicken breast glazed with Sichuan chili crisp topped with pickled cucumber, shredded lettuce, and spring onion mayo held between a toasted potato bun. I'm going to be in London next month. You better believe that I wouldn't normally be running off to an American burger joint, but I'm going to have to go and uh, expense that uh, as some hard-hitting <laughs> cultural research. So, um, Jing, not only would I love to hear a little bit more about this activation, how this came to be, but also I'm, I'm just curious if you would tell us a little bit about your own journey launching this, you know, your, your, your line of products uh, in a market that uh, I think is is ready and eager to embrace some new flavors, but uh, not without some stumbling blocks along the way. So tell us a little bit about this and some more about your brand and uh, what your experience has been. Yeah. Um, so I, I was actually in London a couple of weeks ago to launch this uh, collab, and it was very apt, I thought, that we launched this spicy menu on the hottest day ever. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> degrees and I actually spent that whole day in the kitchen so oh you can only know how hot it was um, but yeah I've heard I mean the launch went really well and um, we had a little dinner I cooked some Sichuan dishes as well and we served it at like a multi-course dinner with the burger as the main course and um, people loved it um, and from what I've heard so far the menu's been doing really well so really excited mm. and hopefully that means that we'll be able to bring it to the U.S. and other markets soon. Um, yeah, exciting. so I mean, this this came about. Um, you know, I uh, have been working on it with them for a few months. Um, the UK just happened to be a bit more um, ahead of the of the US. Like they they had an opening in their in their calendar, and we um, decided to to go for it. And the UK is actually um, our probably our second or third biggest market, other than mm. the US, because mm. um, we do ship internationally. We're a direct to consumer brand, so. Um, yeah, but uh, to kind of back up a bit, um, the brand Fly by Jing, my brand, is about three and a half years old. Um, I moved to the U.S. to launch the the company as like a condiments brand after a really successful Kickstarter that I did back in 2018. Um, at the time, I was actually living in Shanghai. I was running Fly by Jing as an underground supper club. Wow. Um, I had trained with um, a master chef in Sichuan, where I was born. Um, and I was, you know, had learned so much about the ingredients of the region, the traditions, and the um, and the flavor profiles, which Sichuan is famous for. And I was trying to find my own expression that was mm. unique to my experience. I was born in Chengdu, but I grew up in eight countries, moving around like pretty much every year of my life until uh, until like high school. And so um, that you know unique kind of upbringing, and also just my experience of you know constantly code switching and you know trying to fit into wherever I was, um, really uh, I didn't realize until I moved to China in my twenties for a tech job at the time, uh, how disconnected I've become to my heritage. And so through food, I was actually, it was one of the main vehicles for me to reconnect with myself and my identity. And the more I explored it, the more, um, you know, it started off as like a very personal quest to reconnect with my roots, but the more I got into it, the more 
I uh, realized just how, you know, misrepresented it was um, outside of China, you know, mm. Chinese food such a lack of understanding and, um, and misrepresentation. And so I wanted to kind of, you know, uh, shine a light on what it could be this 5,000 year culinary heritage that no one seemed to know about. And so um, I started to uh, write about Chinese food at first, and then I uh, opened a restaurant in Shanghai. Um, and then Fly by Jing started, like I said, after, you know, studying with this incredible chef and um, really trying to find my own voice in it and, and, you know, hopefully be able to push the cuisine forward a bit as well. Because yeah. um, what I observed living in China and being a chef there was just how, um, how uh, you know, the cuisine, like Sichuan cuisine, has really evolved over the thousands of years. You know, even chili pepper came right. from South America through, you know, mm. trading routes. Um, it wasn't a part of the uh, cuisine up until, you know, uh, before even like less than 200 years ago. And today we associate it so much with Sichuan food, right? And so it's constantly an evolution and um, I wanted to play my part in that as well. And, um, and yeah, and so in 2018, um, I happened to come to the U.S., um, went to Expo West, which is, uh, you know, the, a major natural food trade show here and observed just how few Asian food brands there really were. Oh. Um, it's particularly modern ones that were doing something interesting and you know with really high quality ingredients. And so um, that was when I launched my Kickstarter and uh, for you know what became our line of products. Yeah. Um, our most popular product is Sichuan Chili Crisp, which is featured in the Shake Shack menu. And, um, and it's a sauce that, you know, every family in China has their own recipe for, mm. you know, it's yeah. and, um, you know, everyone has such uh, wild variations in kind of what they put into it. And I wanted to create something that was, you know, just my own and um, launched it here in the U S and, you know, I think the, um, the fact that it was a hot sauce, but also mm. a bit different because you had yeah. to use a spoon. To dig into it and you know there was texture and crunch and umami and funk right. and it's not it's not just heat which you know for so long hot sauce here has been you know yeah. vinegar based hot sauces where it is just heat and um and so yeah i think all of those things struck a chord with the with the palettes here um at, you know and i wasn't surprised because it is the most popular hot sauce in china for a reason a country mm. of so many billions right of right it is funny too. I mean, the, the hot sauce market. So I'm a hot sauce. I, I, there are a lot. Saying hot, saying you're a hot sauce fan is ridiculous. Like most people are at this, at this point. But I, I do love. I mean, Fly by Jing is. It's obviously a chili crisp product is a great product. And I, I'm in a funny. I, I, I love your product. I will say I'm like fanboying out here. But um, I often find that there's an interesting moment where, like, there's a in a somewhat related way, there is this gochu jong that I get at my supermarket mm. that is not real gochujang, I have to stress this. Like the real one's kind of funky and like sweet and like sometimes can be almost a little salty. This one is closer to ketchup, right? Mm. It is an incredible sauce, but I would never say that it's like the authentic stuff that like a real Korean ajuma would, would, would use. But, you know, it's interesting because in some ways you do kind of need that product that can pry open a market, right? I, that is a great first gochujang for people, I think Fly by Jing succeeds in part because it matches some flavors that people are, are, are looking for. And I even think about, you know, the Szechuanese market and, and Dan Dan noodles, the success of that particular dish, which I think 
at least in the U.S., has helped mm. open people up to the willingness to try sort of non-Hunanese, non-sort of what we associate with traditional Chinese food. So I think these all play really interesting roles, and I'm, I'm, I love all of the elements of your story because it's like, Kickstarter and hot sauce culture, like there's so much culture that has to, that, that can line up to make this stuff possible. And, um, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm really excited to try this, this Shake Shack uh, burger. I don't suppose we got any questions for, for Jing uh, that popped up in the chat. All right, well, keep them coming. Well, Jing, thank you for sharing that. I, I think we should dig in literally and figuratively to some more of these signals and hear um, mm-hmm. about a couple of other people in a similar space to you. And I'd Love to hear your perspective on, on those as well. Um, Matt, do you want to start us with talking about Pop Chew? Yes. So th- I was really excited about this, uh, this <clears throat> signal in particular because of how technology is being incorporated in the expansion of the American palate. Mm. So here we have uh, two founders, Rashir Parekh and Nick Sopchak. And both of them created this uh, brand that really helps content creators be able to share their own recipes and also bring people together. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's, I think this is really interesting because with this app, you're able to bring that idea to life through digital experiences where friends can come together around food. And that, what we know right now is that's the biggest thing that brings us into new cultures is sharing food with our friends. So here on the restaurant side, PopChu taps into restaurants' unused capacity and helps creators optimize it to create other revenue streams. And all the orders flow through the company and it splits the proceeds with the creators and the restaurants. So I think this really gives a whole new level of agency for people who want to be authentic with how their culture is being expressed in our globalized society. So a question for the panel, is this democratization of scale something that brands should be afraid of, or is there room for collaboration and mutually beneficial profit here? It's a good question. Kat or Hannah, you want to start? Yeah, so I think it's hard because if we're thinking about the changing demographics part, the first place my mind goes to is urban, suburban, and rural. Mm. And I think, um, you know, this kind of diverts from that kind of one-stop shop, um, you know, you know, kind of cultural nuance that is definitely less, because of technology, is kind of shying away. So, like, mm. if if families were to go to a grocery store and do everything there, like that's really no longer the case. Mm-hmm. So it does make me think about di- different ways in which people are kind of like splicing and dicing their own um, like purchasing patterns. Mm-hmm. I might throw this to Jing. I'd be, I'd be, um, you know, kind of diverting from again, that like grocery store or, um, you know, that like market where else like have you seen, um, your product pop up that is kind of like on the nodes of like new technologies. Mm. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, we we've sold through direct to consumer on our own website, and then we went to Amazon. Um, so through Amazon, we were able to get it within two days, and then you know we definitely saw this um, rise in kind of the last mile delivery um, yeah. apps. So I know a lot of them came up in New York, and, and a lot of them also crashed and burned because they were um, growing kind of unsustainably. But we, we still see, you know, like the Go Puffs of the world and, you know, um, Fast AF and Gorillas and stuff. And so I think that was uh, an interesting 
uh, trend. I, I'm not sure how sustainable that is, like mm -hmm. case in point, mm -hmm. uh, stopped operating, but um, just kind of that instant gratification of, you know, you want it, you got it within an hour kind of thing. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you do you think uh, 2017 Jing would have used uh, this service potentially? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, I think I think it fills a niche in the market. I also think you were asking earlier about should brands be freaked out by this. Yeah. I mean, look, it's so important for and, and I'll give credit to the food and beverage industry uh, clients that we work with. Maybe the ones that are, are more forward thinking just come to Sparks and Honey anyway. But I do think it's really valuable for them to remember that ankle biters may eat a little bit of your profit, but they also mm. can point you in the right direction for where to head and for what people are interested in. And so rather than seeing this launch as a threat, see it as something that is actually going to make your product. Um, I think also just utilizing know. where you already are. Like yeah. there might be different ways. Again, if you are just based in a grocery store, there are different ways to connect your products mm. maybe in a way that you hadn't thought about before. Yeah, totally. Um, so let's uh, look at two signals. We're going to tag these together uh, about the diversifying uh, American palate. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, so one thing I think Atlanta is really famous for is its meat and chews, its soul food. It's a city I think that we overwhelmingly associate with sort of black culinary culture, right? Um, that is awesome. And I don't get me wrong, I, I, I would love to go um, have some, uh, some okra or whatever. But the Buford Highway, which is in the north of Atlanta, is becoming this new space where we can understand diverse cuisine in these growing American cities. So the Buford Highway, as this article points out, has become an epicenter for Atlanta's thriving uh, immigrant communities. Um, this piece in the food blog, Local Palette, describes an amazing array of cuisine um, that it, you can get on this fairly unremarkable exurban road, right? They talk about classic Malay roti, Pakistani stews, liquid nitrogen Chinese ice cream, and classic Taiwanese boba. There are also new Lao, Vietnamese, Mexican, West African, and Central American immigrants who are coming to this space, opening up little pop-ups, and suddenly a city that was uh, that you know didn't have a super diverse uh, food palette. Now you can go have as much Hmong food as your heart's uh, you know to your heart's content. Now the highway is thriving. It's been attracting local and national attention, as this article points out. There are a couple things going on here that are maybe a little bit difficult. The popularity of this space has uh, has made rents much more expensive, mm. and so some of those mom and dad pop-ups that you would have gotten uh, a couple of years ago are finding it's actually too expensive to be on the Buford Highway to bring in that sort of real taste of I don't know Burmese or or Yunnanese um, cuisine. But it does represent some really important demographic shifts in big Sunbelt cities like Orlando, like Phoenix, like Houston and Dallas that are seeing a huge influx of, of new immigrants and changing the foods that are available there. These once sleepy culinary towns suddenly can go toe-to-toe -to -toe mm. on their pho. Um, and uh, we can take this over uh, to Los Angeles, actually. Uh, and Matt, why don't you tell us about uh, African food in L.A.? Yeah, so I thought this was really interesting, especially when I was thinking about shows like Insecure, Hentefied, Reservation Dogs, that really give the general populace a different viewpoint on different cities that have gone under the radar but are very important to a lot of cultural you know, a lot of cultural artifacts that we use within popular culture. Mm -hmm. So I found this article fascinating because it details how Inglewood became the center of African cooking in L.A. Mm -hmm. So, and this is really a microcosm of the, micro, the macro trend that we're seeing across the, the broader U.S. demographic shift. So in the 1920s, uh, Inglewood was a predominantly white neighborhood, but after new laws made housing discrimination illegal due to the 1965 Watts Riots Acts, African Americans actually started to move 
into this neighborhood and white residents left, white flight. Mm. So this really formed a predominantly black community. And although this community is undergoing gentrification, as we talked about earlier, this has really become a space for African African restaurants to thrive. Uh, you can trace how rice and beans and staple, which is a staple of many cultures in the Americas, developed in regions across Africa, across Africa, and also how colonialization has impacted Somali cuisine um, and other different cuisines. So this is really showing us when immigration is done right and when people are able to have space for themselves, you're able to see how history tracks and where we get a lot of our culinary staples from. So the question for the panel here is, what can we learn by studying spaces like Buford Highway and Inglewood? And are these spaces, are spaces like this where the next big food trend will emerge? Or how should brands engage with these spaces to understand the future of food consumption in the United States? So, Kat, tell us your thoughts on this. Yeah, so I, I just thinking about the brand side of things, I know we've talked about provenance. That's one of the leading EOCs for this um, Hugh Boolean. And I know we think of provenance as something that's more consumer-facing, right? It's the manifestation of consumers, you know, expressing more nationalist or localist feelings. Mm. But it also applies to the producer side, right? And I think for these, you know, these communities, these regions that have been through a lot of demographic change, there could be that sense of, you know, made by us for us, of this community trying to reclaim their spot in American culture, trying to celebrate yeah. their culture amid, you know, diasporic struggles and resilience. So there's a lot of history and tension here. So I would caution brands from thinking of these places as where the next big trend is, because there's already a lot of past and present history intertwined there that has to be studied mm-hmm. and approached very carefully first before trying to make any moves or trying to assume that you have the right to play. Yeah. I, 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 the brand that I think about when I think about this is literally like tourism brands, right? Mm. Like, it's funny because you go to a city like Atlanta and they will show you photos nonstop of like the downtown and the Coca-Cola aquarium, right? Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, I mean, at least in my take, the, the more interesting thing to go do would be to go out to the Buford Highway and to go sample all this amazing food and see that sort of diversity. You think about, you know, my native Philadelphia does a really yeah. good job of talking about the uh, Italian market, which has these traditional Italian places, these new Mexican restaurants, Cambodian food as well, and really making that sort of the soul of the city. So I do think it's a great place for brand I think what you're kind of getting at is that we need to switch the conversation from a restaurant is actually a cultural institution and then a product is actually a cultural artifact. Mm -hmm. But the thing about if we think of, you know, museums and um, different kind of cultural events, those require, like, investment. They require nurture. And I think that's also where the brand's can kind of um, play in this space. Yeah, exactly. So this is an opportunity for the W's, the Marriott's, the Hilton's of the world to ask themselves if they want to differentiate based on more than just price or service. Like, mm-hmm. they could think differently about how they speak about what it's like to be in Los Angeles or what to, there is what the wonderful things to do in Atlanta or, or Houston or, or whatever. We, I, think, I think that is often missed, and I think those are opportunities for those brands. Yeah, and I think if you make it a bigger conversation, like... Uh, food in general is just so central to these like locations right and so any sort of location everyone has their part in it and it is this kind of like um collective you know thing we can care about yeah i also think about for the first signal like you know maybe like you know 
or the way we think of like a county fair, like that is something that needs like a, you know, kind yeah. of new revival and there could be opportunities yeah. there. And of course there's a little bit of tension there being like, okay, do we want to throw a bunch of tourists and a bunch of tourist money at a space that used to be cheaper, that used to serve an immigrant community? But I do think there are ways to do it in a way that's empathetic, that is, that is showing your love for, for a different culture rather than sort of, you know, uh, taking it over. Nayaja, did you want to add something? Brand that actually does this um, or company, whatever you want to call it. But Airbnb, if you go on yep, there, you sure. always see all the like it tells you what to do in these places. And I use Airbnb different around here, so I literally mm-hmm. just go on and see like whatever activity I can do, which is mostly always food eating, anyways. But the thing about Airbnb, I think that does well is that it's whoever lives there is doing the thing. Yeah. You know? So it's always a local, and I do a lot of food tours when I travel. So. Because of how Airbnb is set up, I don't have to go and search really long periods of time on Google or whatever. I can go straight to Airbnb and say, yeah. I'm going to be in this area on this day, and I want to do a food tour. Yeah. And you know the person showing you around is a local, mm-hmm. and oftentimes Airbnb will hire those people to be like an actual Airbnb staff member yeah. to show people around for a certain period of time, and they'll rotate people. So I think that's also a thing that... If hotels got in on that, because you can put hotel rooms up on Airbnb, you can do motel things. To pair those two things together of this this hotel, yeah. this is the food tour, I think will work well if hotels did stuff like that too. Yeah, absolutely. And Instagram has actually made some changes to make that sort of easier as well. There's just a ton of opportunity in that space. Okay, so um, we're, you know, we just talked about immigrant communities bringing their foods here, and I do want to talk about a signal about um, not just immigrant communities, but specifically people in first-generation uh, immigrants. So this Huffington Post um, uh, just wrote an interesting piece about Hetal uh, Vasudava, a best-selling cookbook author and the force behind the food blog at Milk and Cardamom, which they call an amalgam of unique Indian fusion recipes and has a huge and dedicated following. Now, the writer for uh, this particular piece, whose name is Alicia Sahay, loves this blog and says that one thing that she really appreciates about it is not only reading about these great recipes and thinking Mm. a little bit differently, but also that this South uh, Asian-focused blog is, is part of a bigger ecosystem of blogs and TikToks and Instagrams that give you sort of a classic taste of, 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 a cult- of, of, of a culture, but in a way that's a little bit more updated and a little bit uh, more, as, as, the, that Indi- as the first generation Indian American community calls themselves, Desi, right? So these are people who are born in the US, they are New Jersey through and through or whatever, but their parents might have come from the subcontinent. And you grow up in an interesting cultural space where you have some very authentic culture on, on one side, but you're still American and you're yeah. still, you know, this article talks about um, recipes for a veggie quesadilla with, that's spiced with garam masala, right? Those are inherently flavors that are tied to the Indian subcontinent, but also things that feel very modern and American. And as Sahay says in this article, there is a real cultural tension about not feeling Indian enough, right? You're too Indian in some circumstances, but you go to the home, you know, you go to your parents' hometown and suddenly you feel you're too American. And that being caught in between those two worlds and what's interesting, she points out in this article, is that those TikToks and those Instagrams speak very deeply to that experience about not feeling quite Indian enough, not feeling quite connected enough to to that culture, but still loving that culture and still feeling very tied to that culture. And look, I think it's a really interesting, again, a space for, you know, for for social media brands to play. And I guess my question is, and I would love to hear from people, is that, um, you know, we talk a lot about authentic cuisine, authentic Szechuanese food, authentic Vietnamese food or whatever, but is there a space for first-generation cuisine 
something that feels like it's tied to someone's uh, you know parents' culture, but also feels fairly uh, American as well. And Jing or Kat, I'd be curious, maybe your thoughts on on this. Can we find something value? Can we can we add more value to first generation cuisine? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know the diaspora is just so wide, right? And so there has to be space for that cuisine to expand and to um, and to evolve. Um, and that's actually something that I observed when I was living in China, working as a chef, and I was seeing. Um, you know, so Fly by Jing is named after fly restaurants, which are these um, hole in the walls in Chengdu that are known for being so delicious, they draw people like flies. And they're typically, you know, traditionally uh, mom and pop kind of old school restaurants, but I was observing these like young chefs that were opening their versions of fly restaurants and really just doing whatever they wanted and not really feeling bound by the rules of tradition. Yeah. Um, and there is a lot of like tradition, even in Sichuan, like they set up this entire, you know, there's a culinary, there's like a league of old chefs, a guard of old chefs that have rules about exactly how, how much of this ingredient and this ingredient has to come from this place or else that's not mapo tofu, you know, and all these rules. And so I saw these young Chinese, you know, Sichuanese chefs kind of rebel against it and kind of really push it forward mm -hmm. in, in their own way. And then meanwhile, I also saw that in the West, there was this preoccupation with trying to, you know, um, kind of keep something in a box almost, mm -hmm. not allow it to evolve, right? So the um, the way people were using the word authentic was really, um, you know, in relation to a pers very personal experience. Like, this is not authentic, mm. you know, because of my experience, my grandmother made it this way or, you know, whatever. And it was a very narrow set of experiences. And so, um, I found that really interesting. And so when we launched um, our brand, my brand as well here, we got a lot of pushback. Mm. You know, people, this is not like La Gama or like this is not like the chili sauce that um, I know. And yeah. so therefore, the chili sauce. And um, it actually led me to, uh, in, in a rebrand that we did a year after launch, um, we, like what you see now on our jar, we tell our, my story. And the tagline is not traditional, but personal. Yeah. yeah. Really to show that this is one person's recipes, one person's story. And through these flavors, I'm sharing mine. And uh, what I found was um, through through doing that, and actually I, I reclaimed my birth name in this process as well. I went by a different name for most of my life. And yeah. um, when I shared that story on the jar and uh, it, it was such a personal story to me, it felt, but um, it really struck these universal connection points with people. Mm. And, and so many people reached out from all walks of life saying that they understood what it, what it felt like to seek belonging and to, to find it. And so um, I think, yeah, the, the, it, it almost like gave others permission yeah. as well mm. to, to explore their story and to share their stories. So yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, I mean, there was an article actually yesterday in the New York Times about Korean ad adoptee chefs. And yes, very yeah, I saw that one. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's incredible. It's funny, there's like a, there's a theme of empathy running through all of this. Matt, you're, you, you, you are nodding very vigorously. <laughs> what, are, what, are, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, Jane, I have been listening to podcasts that you've been a part of and reading your stuff, and I really was drawn to the it's not traditional, it's personal line because... For me, as a second-generation Jamaican-American in this land, 
There is so much talk about, you know, being an Oreo or being a coconut or being a banana or being whatever, because people like to put cultural narratives in a box and say that this is how it's supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to stay. Yeah. So when I see creators like Jing and other people who are actually saying, no, this is my understanding of my culture, period, and I'm going to present a product for you to partake in how I understand it. That's the entire narrative of progress. It's going forward, not yeah. always sticking to what our forefathers said in an amendment that was made, you know, 200-something years ago. <laughs> so I thought that was really interesting. So thank you, Jing. I love that. Yeah. Um, let's uh, should we move to the exact, well, not the exact opposite, but uh, <laughs> yeah. somewhat a contrarian signal here. Yeah, so, you know, this signal here talks a lot more about that tension that we see when it comes to being authentic and being traditional. And for me, you know, I stay up very late at night watching TikTok recipes and cultural commentaries. And in March 2021, a white blogger incorrectly labeled a noodle dish pho and received huge backlash. Um, And then in July 2021, another white woman started a healthy breakfast company um, and ended up calling herself the queen of kanji after this. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) So, and, you know... Asian rice porridge is over 4,000 years old, so she really found herself in a very heated social media battle. Um, However, in the face of this appropriation and the challenges that it brings for uh, people who come from underrepresented cultures, a lot of TikTokers have actually taken to satire and humor to clap back at this appropriation and how, you know, really ridiculous it is to think that your discovery of something means that it is a progress or an innovation. Uh, So I wanted to showcase how this manifests itself through showing a video um, that's here. And uh, I've watched this probably 500 times. All right, here's your 500. I'm going to show you uh, my newest obsession. I call these my sausage tacos that I've been obsessed with lately. I made it up all by myself, and they're so good. Okay, so first you're gonna take these really cute fluffy tortillas and you're just gonna open them up. They kind of do it for you. And then I'm gonna take this American kind of crema thing. I'm not really sure, but this is what I use. Coat it. Okay, and then I'm gonna take the sausage, plop that in. And then I like to top mine with this American salsa de tomate and then also this. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. I think it's mustard. Mustard. I got it all at Trader Jose because it's super accessible to everyone. There is my sausage taco. Make sure y'all blow this up so it gets super popular and then it can start showing up in our stores and that way we can start paying like $25 for one of these. Hi guys, today I'm- Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so as you can see, that humor, it's biting, it makes me laugh, but also brings a lot of tension in my body because I know <laughs> when I watch other creators talk like this, it's like they have this ownership over something they have no clue of the history about. Right. Uh, so I wanted to ask the panel, um, you know, well actually, really start with Jing here. Could you talk to the way businesses should navigate cultural appropriation and respond to that? Um, And then also, how can those who have the keys to the culture move Mm -hmm. the general ball forward uh, while certain communities continue to exploit and misuse cultural artifacts? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that we're in a really amazing time right now. It feels like a renaissance of, you know, uh, 
of communities taking claim and ownership of their own narrative, right? And, and doing so through many different forms, through food, through media, um, fashion, you know, and all of that. So I think it's, it's an exciting time. Um, I think that those voices need to be amplified and they need to be mm -hmm. supported. Um, you know, we still, uh, as women of color, we still receive uh, disproportionately low investment um, mm -hmm. funding businesses right and so I personally have had a very hard time uh, raising money and so you know I think for brands for companies um, you know people who uh, have the resources I think it's really to to support you know I, I see um, um, you know there's uh, I don't want to call any companies out here but there have been that have approached us, like retailers that have approached us about white labeling um, a chili sauce because they, they want their own version. They want it scrubbed of or devoid of cultural context. And, you know, we've said no to that. Yeah. Um, it's in their interest to actually highlight, you know, um, mm. our real authentic voices and, and on their shelves, right? But um, they still continue not to not to see it from that point of view. Um, but I think, you know, there's other um, retailers. So, you know, for example, you know, I, I we, we, Target was actually the first um, retailer that we did enter into nationally. And so um, they've been very active in kind of um, wanting to do what's right. And, you know, like the buyer has asked me, like, what, to, what should we do about this ethnic aisle that we've, we've had for so long? And, it's impossible for me to get rid of overnight, but how can we do better? And so, you know, I've worked with them to identify, you know, the hot sauce aisle actually might be a better place for us instead of the ethnic aisle because yeah. it actually mm -hmm. has the foot traffic. And so they were the first retailer to actually put us in, in the hot sauce aisle. Um, so there's examples of, you know, retailers or larger companies that can be doing the right thing. And then, um, but we continue to experience wow. the opposite as well. People. You know, I know there's another large company that recently came out with a product that um, was very similar to what we make, and they um, call it culinary crunch. So completely devoid of any kind of cultural context, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think mean, two examples of what to do and not to do, I guess. Mm -hmm. Kat, what did you make of that uh, TikTok video? Why do you think it's powerful? Yeah, for me, I thought it was. Well, the first thought that came to my mind was you can't have it both ways, right? You can't claim to have discovered something amazing. But then, you know, a lot of kids of color, when they're growing up, they still have these lunchbox moments where they bring their lunch to the cafeteria and everyone around them is like, oh, my God, what is that? That's gross. Or why are you eating that? When really, you know, give it 20 years, you'll discover it. And now you're suddenly proud of it. Um, so just speaking to Jing's point, you know, having that kind of storytelling available on bottles in a very public facing way um, can get people of all ages really, you know, starting from Gen Alpha, Gen Z, we're very vocal about what we mm -hmm. see and about saying, you know, standing up for what's um, standing up for what's right. So I think getting that level of storytelling out there to make sure that, you know, we have the opportunity to amplify it, to share it. That's like a good way to get the ball rolling and yeah. hopefully end those kind of lunchbox moments. Do we, I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the lunchbox moment. I, and I, I literally don't know the answer to this. I'm curious if those, God, this is probably just wishful thinking. I'm curious if they, like, to what degree and what they look like in 2022, the lunchbox moment. Because I'm, I'm, it's funny, we were, we were talking about first generation. I'm 
second generation on my mom's side, my grandparents were refugees, and they didn't, for well, they didn't really come from a culture that cooked that much, but there were no old country recipes, right? They got to the U.S. in the late 30s and just never cooked the, you know, Eastern European food ever again, right? Mm. Uh, so they, there is a heritage that they were just, that my mother just some, simply didn't grow up with. It was tossed out, right? Mm. And I think that's often core to that lunchbox moment where it, in, in American culture, at least historically, we've asked people to conform to these like very specific culinary rituals. And it's interesting to read, you know, to think about the huge growth of, of America's palate as we get more diverse. But, and again, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm curious if we have, uh, if, if lunchbox moments are as prevalent and as bad as they used to be and even what schools are doing to avoid those lunchbox moments. I don't know if anybody has the answer, but it feels like a potent question to ask as we think about, you know, uh, new, uh, forming new eating habits. Yeah. I think um, education is both something that is communicated via, like, visual cues and then communicated through, like, conversation. So I just hope yeah. on the maybe, like, primary and secondary school levels, it's that community, that um, community, like, and, and um, communication. Yeah. Uh, let's do two more signals real quick, and we'll, we'll, we'll speed through them, but um, we do have to talk about income here. So, yeah. Matt, tell us a little bit about inflation and how that's changing the story. Yeah, so this one is a particularly poignant signal because as we talk about America's changing palate, you know, we know that certain palates come with a certain class sometimes when we think about caviar and what that palate says or foie gras. So, however, as a large brand start turning towards more, uh, you know, cultural palates that have been left out of the general population conversation, it's important to talk about how the continued class struggle uh, is being left out. And it's still here in the United States, and it disproportionately impacts the dinner tables of non-white Americans. Uh, so black and Hispanic Americans have been grappling with higher inflation rates than the national average since prices began surging in March 2021. And a lot of these surges are impacting the foods that they're able to buy in grocery stores. And we already have conversations around food deserts anyways. Mm. So that also impacts the future of what we're able to cook, what we're able to cook in certain communities. So, however, after adjusted spending levels, the inflation rate still continues to be roughly 0.6% higher for Hispanic Americans, and then for black Americans, around 0.2% higher um, for them as well. Uh, so I just really want us to just reflect on the fact that as we are thinking about palettes, how do we actually achieve those palettes? And it's through the resources that we have to be able to create that food in the first place. So a question for the panel, how important is it for food brands to navigate food insecurity mm. in the United States, and how do brands do that sustainably as well? I mean, I would tag this to our uncertainty report, mm. uh, which you can get at reports.sparksandhoney.com, um, which talks uh, about this. I mean, look, it is very important to remind ourselves that oftentimes access to the ingredients that may be quote-unquote authentic, or, or the ones that you might not find at the average grocery store can mm. come with a, a small sense of, of privilege, right? Mm. I mean, that's, uh, you know, Whole Foods has an incredible diversity of foods, but it is more expensive than going to Walmart to go do your grocery shopping. And I, yeah. I think what's important is that if, if companies are going to make a commitment to trying to speak to more diverse flavors and more diverse palates, they also have to recognize that that's not going to work if the rambutans cost $18 a pound, mm. you know? Um, that there may be, that there may need to be some sort of commitment to, to 
you know, thinking about ways, ha- food hacks around that, hmm. or, or different time, you know, or, or taking a loss potentially on something, doing a smaller markup, um, because there is that real tension between giving people access to what is not common mm-hmm. and the fact that what is not common in American grocery stores is often more expensive. Uh-huh. My thought on that. Um, actually, let's jump really quickly into those big brands because we have talked about them a whole bunch. Um, and uh, look, you know, small operators, startups, and brands. Um, it's worth reminding ourselves that food conglomerates also have a really big role to play in this. So on this, just this past Tuesday, uh, spice giant McCormick announced, quote, um, it was making a concerted effort to stay or become more relevant, um, most recently with a new line of seasonings that focus on uh, flavors and ingredients that, that, that the, fair, the decades and actually century-old brand uh, isn't super known for. Think miso and black garlic. So this is a big deal, right? Because McCormick's labels, those red-topped uh, spice uh, containers, are something you can find in like almost every grocery store. Their push to make more accessible flavors and to mm. expand what they're doing um, is, a, is a real investment in the idea that people want new and more diverse flavors. Uh, Eater reports that while there is real competition in the spice industry to capture this sort of mind share, big brands like McCormick are feeling the pressure uh, from small batch producers. And so that's why they're, they're trying to expand their line a little bit here. And I think they do deserve some credit for recognizing that, um, that they need to be uh, uh, more diverse in that way. Uh, Jing, I might ask you real quick here, because this is maybe a little bit of a threat to your own bottom line. How would you tell a major food conglomerate to to expand and diversify its palate without stepping on toes? I mean, is this about better acquisition, like buying companies they're interested in instead of ripping the, instead of trying to duplicate mm-hmm. it? What's, what are some of those best practices you might want to see? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it is about really having the humility to just know, don't know, you know, you don't know the space and to observe and to support if you can. And I know that, um, you know, companies like McCormick and, and Kraft Heinz are like, you know, looking at smaller brands and trying to make acquisitions. But, you know, I think, um, I think it, it, it is to, um, but I don't think the answer is to kind of jump into trying to create their own versions. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, again, I think it goes into supporting, you know, the brands that are doing it well, or even just like, you know, observing and learning what what it is um, mm-hmm. that is resonating with people. And, you know, for mm. us, it's not just the flavor. It is our personal story. Sure. It is the, 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 the fact that, you know, consumers are connecting to, um, yeah, to those stories. And so, yeah, I think um, it's just not something that these brands can uh, just duplicate um, overnight. So. Or waltz into, might, yeah. would you encourage them to put more money further up the funnel? I mean, you said you had trouble fundraising. Is this, for the McCormicks and the Kraft uh, Heinzes of the world, should they be investing more in mm. startups and incubators to get these, to, so they can have first dibs at these new flavors? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I, and I've seen them do that with some with some companies in an early stage. Yeah. So I think that's all. Yeah. Mm. I would like to add yeah. some, or just like, you know, circle back on something Jing said here, which is like observing and understanding the flavors. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's just like, if you see that a certain flavor is resonating with an audience, understand why, 
How does that make them feel? And also in Jing's case, what's that story around it? So how can large companies create their own flavors that tell a certain story that get people to be inspired? At the end of the day, it's we can't just continuously copy and scale yeah, yeah. things that are already happening. Do something different. Make something that's actually a part of your brand. Yeah. And I think of the McCormick as kind of like the like very kind of um, very singular spice rack. Like that yeah. is no longer, I think, for a lot of people. And so even just it's not just adding one more to that rack. It's yeah. making this rack like just a lot more personal, a lot more like celebratory. Yeah. And, and just as Jing was saying earlier, this is a great time to experiment with that. There's so many yeah. more people who have great products that can be pushed out. And, you know, the, it's, whoever moves first is going gonna, is gonna to win there as those conglomerates. Um, let's move to our wrap-ups. Hannah, we talked a lot about tensions today. Is there a particular tension that struck you uh, and a, a way of resolving that um, from today's signals? I think, to Jing's point, the personal versus the collective and mm-hmm. bringing those two together really resonated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, Kat, we started with our trends and EOCs. Which element of culture do you feel sort of best speaks to the, the, the really fascinating conversation we've had today? Yeah, I'm actually going to call out moral imperative for this one, mm-hmm. even though I know it wasn't in the top three. We've talked a lot about empathy, cultural appreciation mm-hmm. versus appropriation. There's a lot of, you know, doing the right thing here. Um, and for brands, I think just, just looking into getting involved with the communities that you're trying to speak to, trying to resonate with, that are behind these flavors and recipes in the first place. There's a lot of doing the right thing, and um, that's just where brands should put their focus versus running in full force. Okay. Love that. And, and Jing, I'll give you the, the last word here. Um, any hot takes, any things you uh, would love to leave our audience or some of our clients with uh, about this particular topic and thinking about a, a, a diversifying palette? Yeah, I think just the, the thing that comes to mind is like really thinking about where innovation comes from. I think a lot of big companies sometimes, um, they think that innovation is like something like mashing two things together or, you know, look observing trends and like capitalizing on it. Um, but, you know, uh, I think what I'm seeing with, you know, small startup brands um, is people, there's a, there's innovation comes from like having a story you want to express and like there's a reason mm. for being there that's, you know, whether it's identity or something else. And, um, and I think that is, is the thing that is, you know, from what I know from having worked at large companies, I used to work at P&G and I know kind of how they develop products. It's not, um, it's, it's not something that can be created through the, structures or the workings of a, of a company typically like that. So mm-hmm. I think for larger companies, it's really to like reevaluate how innovation um, comes about and this, and create the structures for that within, within their organization. All right. Well, thank you for, uh, thank you for joining us, Jing. You're, uh, well, next time you're coming into the studio, um, we'd, love to, we'd love to see you in person. And of course, a big shout out to Kat. Matt and to Hannah. Thank you uh, to our audience. Thank you for joining online. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page at New New York time. Make sure to RSVP so that way you can get access. Uh, while you're there, jump in the comment section. Let us know your thoughts, some of your questions. We'd be happy to answer them live. Uh, if you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build these briefings, we'd love to give you a demo of it. Uh, it is incredibly valuable for us as we talk about these big, evolving topics. And finally, if you're interested in joining us in person, we had a, some great guests 
uh, yesterday to just pop by, feel free to jump onto our website and sign up to come on in. We'd love to have you uh, come hang out with us in Midtown Manhattan. So until next week, consider yourselves briefed. Stop.